For those listening to the podcast, please note that you can now attend the kitchen sink meeting via Zoom while the stay-at-home order is in effect in Los Angeles. Go to oalaig.org for login information. Okay. Hi. I'm covering, gratefully, um, bulimic, anorexic, overeater, undereater, chewer, and spitter. Um, thank you for asking me to share. This is a really um, special meeting to me. I, I, um, I listened to it a lot when I first got into recovery. Um, when I was living in New York, and now I live closer to it, and um, I'm not as often on this meeting. I have some local meetings here in um, in LA. So let's see. Um, I really didn't want to plan. It helps me, I think, these days not to be a perfectionist. I came into to OA really with the gift of desperation. It was a Tuesday, 3:30 afternoon meeting, and I just couldn't believe what I heard. The night before I came into OA, I was journaling, just so defeated and demoralized and full of shame that for so many years I was um, throwing up my food and just didn't feel like I had any other problem in the world except that I was throwing up my food. And if I could just stop that because everything else was fine. And I remember thinking also that um, I heard people say, like, I remember Oprah was still on and she would talk about emotional eating. And I was like, I'm not an emotional eater. I, I just um, eat. I just have this problem all day long. I just eat, you know, and I didn't think it was related to emotion. Um, but I, I really, um, I do see how my disease progressed before OA. It was. It was just, it started with, you know, in high school, um, I was an athlete and I didn't really carry the weight. And then I started to probably go through puberty and started to see some weight and just the criticism. I think it started with the self-criticism that I wasn't enough and I needed to do something about this way my body was changing. And at the same time, I coped with food. And I grew up in Las Vegas. We ate a lot of all-you-can-eat buffets, and there was a lot of grazing in my house, and I don't remember having a really clear definition of what a meal looked like. It just never had a beginning, and it never had an end. It was just all day. And being an athlete, um, I didn't really think I had an issue with weight. Um, And then in college, it was just a lot of binging, and then when I didn't have family around to help me, I, um, you know, with with meals, I was just, you know, eating a lot of cartons and bags of stuff and and binging. And I really did gain probably 15, 20 pounds, but I was also using laxatives to try to control my weight and over-exercise. And what's interesting is then it still took me so many years to find, as it was continuing to progress, it it took me... I, I came into the rooms 2007, June, and I was 33 years old. So a lot of years of, the, of trying to test out how, um, how I could kind of figure out how to control my body and still use food and still live a spiritual life. I mean, I was meditating from when I was 21 and doing the journaling. So a lot of the tools that are recommended – you know, they're just not recommended by themselves. I realize now that I got into OA, and I think what's fascinating is I look back now, I was thinking about it this morning, like how did I get abstinent 
from throwing up my food because I was spiritually seeking for a long time, reading literature um, and meditating daily and writing. And I really think it had to do with a certain level of willingness. When I got here, I was so um, just, it was the last stop on the door. I had tried therapy. The therapist told me, just whatever you do, don't tell your boyfriend. You know, this is a this is a teenager disease. He didn't obviously understand the disease. I wasn't throwing up it when I was a teenager. It just continued to progress. And I remember hearing when I first walked into that first meeting, if you don't arrest it, it progresses. And I just was stunned. I just saw how my own disease had progressed, and I saw how it could progress. And I saw people in the rooms who were still struggling with throwing up, and I couldn't believe they were admitting it. I I wasn't prepared to even admit that I was bulimic. I was just prepared to say not even my full name because it's, it's so um, different and identifiable. I was just going to be like, I'm just going to come in here and try to figure out how to stop throwing up my food and then get out. And then um, I just – they carried the message, and somebody came up to me after that very first meeting and said, do you want some phone numbers? And I just thought this so weird, no. And she said, you know, a lot of us take phone numbers, and when you're not in a meeting, you can call. And I, it was so foreign to me, but I had willingness. I just was like, what else do I have to lose? That night, I did not know how to eat and keep down my food. I mean, everything I ate was was in the toilet and I picked up, picked up the phone, ended up not getting people. Um, and then somebody picked up the phone and then for about two weeks, that same person talked me through like, okay. And then this is called bookending. You, you start a meal, you end a meal, you call or you text. And it helped me so much. And then eventually I admitted to her, do you know what? I'm not throwing up my food. I hadn't admitted to her first. And she was like, Oh, okay. And I was like, what do you mean, okay? Isn't this huge that somebody just admitted to you that they throw up their food? And she's like, no, I, I am a recovering bulimic and unfortunately I'm not abstinent. So she helped me get abstinent. And she, cause I had asked her if she could sponsor me and she said, I'm, but I'm not abstinent. And it just blew my mind. It just blew my mind. Um, and oh, I just have so much gratitude for this program. 13 years in, I feel like from that day, I haven't thrown up my food, and I do see the roller coaster of how this disease has presented itself to me when I put down the food. They say when you stop eating compulsively, a lot of the time you start realizing why you were eating, and it so has been far from perfect in the 13 years, and for me, it has been learning how to be with the imperfections, and in the big book, it says, the only people who fail to recover are those who are unwilling or incapable of being rigorously honest. And I hang on to that because then I realize, okay, I did that imperfectly and I don't want to tell anybody. And I want to recover. I want to recover. And even though my bottom line has been in place without throwing up my food for 13 years, which is no small feat, um, I – I do feel like um, the first four years of of program, there was a lot of chewing and spitting. There was a lot of I'm still going to control my um, – I don't even know if it was four, because it has been intermittent. Chewing and spitting has been intermittent throughout the 13 years. Um, and there has been sometimes overeating, and I'm also seeing um, 
even still how important it is for me to watch my anorexia and how much I want to skip meals, how um, it just feels like I have a certain power. I want to take back what I have surrendered on a daily basis to my higher power. I want to take it back and I want to control my food or my body or or how, you know, sensitive I am to food and feeling like, oh, I just don't want to feel it in my body. And I remember when I first stopped throwing up, I, it was so hard. So for anybody out there who's struggling with bulimia, I know how hard it is to tolerate letting my food digest and sitting on my hands and not throwing it up. I remember that like it was yesterday. I'm so grateful because I know how hard it is. I know the um i i really feel like before i got abstinent i just had this gift of willingness just desperation as they say and i was willing to go to any length and to do whatever it took to not throw up my food and you know a lot of people i know come into oa just they stay for the they come for the vanity stay for the sanity i was probably a similar weight i came for the sanity and not how only have i feel do i feel like i've been given um, sanity one moment at a time. I mean, it, it, I do I do uh, have a lot of certainly a lot of life stuff going on, and it feels insane sometimes. But I feel like I have been given this gift of a community, a spiritual, um, little spiritual life, and a spiritual connect connection. I think the step work for me has really showed me self-compassion. It's not just about, for me, um, understanding why I ate and why I want to eat. It's really looking at, there's so, there's so, I do come from, um, you know, uh, an, a family of addicts, and um, I always thought food was the least worrisome of the addictions, you know, and I really see how not only keeping myself in the rooms, but by um, and seeing other people recovering and how destructive. Sometimes it's almost more, it's easier for me to see how destructive it is on somebody else. Because I remember when I first came in, I didn't think I was being destructive. I was just, this is what I did. It was just so numb and in such denial that this was a problem for me. And um, But I have softened over the years to see how destructive I was to myself by being actively bulimic, but also with my thoughts, um, with how punishing, I mean, that was just an outward um, behavior. You know, they, they'd say that the the um, the alcohol or the food is just a symptom of my illness. You know, the, uh, the over-exercising, the lack, those are just symptoms. It really begins with um, how critical my mind could be, and I just wanted to escape it. So feeling like really walking through the steps quite a few times in OA, and just yesterday I, I, I completed a step four, and it's just so um, – I, I was terrified. I called my sponsor yesterday morning, and I was just like, I am so afraid to finish this step four. I have – I am afraid of being more emotional than I can tolerate. And um, she reminded me, like, how close I was to finishing – so I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and do this. And um, I sat down for, for hours yesterday and completed it. And what I realized is I was afraid of being too emotional, but what it really showed me was so much self-compassion, which is what I 
really needed so much self-compassion for all the things I think I can control and I wasn't consciously looking at and then realizing I don't have control over that. What would it look like if I if I um, had a different behavior around that and it would look a lot like I was peaceful. And I remembered that, you know, the serenity prayer is something that, that it, it sticks with me all through my day. And my children are a result of step three. I have an 11-year-old and a, an 8-year-old. And sometimes they recite back to me the stuff that I'm working on. And I'm, I really work on not pontificating or advice giving to them as well and letting them be their own. And a lot of, like, my step work is showing me how, oh, yeah, I, I'm not supposed to be their higher power. I don't determine if they are, you know, what they do in their lives I just am a vessel here to love them. I, and, and when I remember I'm not supposed to control that, I also feel less anxiety. I feel less fear. I turn it over. I don't know what's supposed to happen. But my daughter, sometimes we say the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And the other day she, she um, we, we were at dinner and she says, well, the things I cannot change are this pandemic. The things we cannot change are we can't see our friends. Um, the courage to change the things we can. We have to wear masks, I guess. And, um, well, we can hug each other, the ones that we know. And the wisdom to know the difference is like pray and let God take care of all of us and know God or some power greater than me. I remember when I first walked in here, I really thought I had a deep faith in God. And yet when I had to become abstinent from throwing up my food, it was a whole different level of surrender, and I did not want to do it. I didn't, I didn't like that I did, that I was, it was suggested. I don't have to do anything in this program, but it was suggested I turn over everything I eat, which I still do to this day. It helps me. It's not because I want to be a good girl or I, if someone's going to get mad at me if I don't. It just helps me to have accountability. And, and I think that's what the meetings did to me when I first got abstinent. And I was showing up and people were clapping for me that I wasn't throwing up my food. So I was like, I better do this for them. <laughs> I didn't realize how codependent it was. But interestingly, when I was like 85 days abstinent, we were, I was in my, my home meeting on the Upper West Side in New York. And we were doing a business meeting. And someone nominated me to lead the meeting for the following three months. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not 90 days abstinent yet. And, and they said, well, next week when we actually are supposed to start the new thing, the new, um, you know, positions, if you're not abstinent next week, just tell us and we'll find somebody else. And I was like, oh, they trust me. They believe that I'm going to be abstinent for another few days. Can I do this? But it helped. They loved me before I learned to love myself. And then being put in a service position was such a gift to maintain my abstinence. Because I was so just like, I really feel like my higher power when I first came in here was was the people. It was these people who were working these steps, working these tools, showing up for meetings. I can't, I, even today, I resist going to meetings and, um, I don't resist meditation and prayer. I, I, I really love that. Five minutes. Okay, thanks. But there's a lot, there are a lot of things I don't, I don't want to show up for that I feel grateful I have smart feet and get my feet there. And show up and I feel better. They say if you, if you want to feel better, go to a meeting. If you want to get better, work the steps. So just to get current with where I am today, you know, my life continued to get better and better and better and a lot of freedom with, with, um, my eating disorder and, um, 
Yeah, and then three years ago I started to see, uh, maybe four, issues going on with my husband. And it took us about two years to get a diagnosis that he has Alzheimer's. And he is, it's a very rare form of Alzheimer's. And he's blind now, or, or almost blind, not completely. But he doesn't process what he sees. And he has a progressive illness that he doesn't have a cure for. That he can't show up to meetings and um, get better. And it has um, also been very hard to witness this man I love and feel so powerless that I can't fix this. And also how um, my kids are walking through this. And yet I do feel because of this program, I have support. I don't, I know I can't fix it. I know I'm not wrong. I want, I want to go to guilt or futurizing or fixing. I have a program that teaches me one day at a time that I'm not alone and that I don't, I don't, I don't have to like, I've sometimes was telling my sponsor, I'm supposed to generate all the energy in this house to get my kids happy to get, I don't have to generate anything. I breathe. I stay abstinent. I show up for my recovery. I put the oxygen mask on myself first. And I am so, um, and I have waves of emotion every day and I permit that now and I allow it and I can be here as a presence of love and trust that there's a power greater than me taking care of all of us. And I have, you know, a place to, I have other support groups for this as well. Because of this program, I know the value of having people identify. I have a sponsor in two programs and I sponsor several people. So it's like there's so much focus on my own recovery, my needs, as well as, um, how I can be of service to help others, and um, and also the value of, my God, if I was throwing up my food through this, the chaos, that I, I wouldn't be present for my children, and I would also um, not be present for my husband nor myself. And so as hard as it is, this is definitely, you know, it was weird. My life was just better, better, get better, better, and then all of this happened, and it's, it's a lot every day. Um, and I'm just so grateful today that I get to tell my story, which is really a, um, it's a very hopeful story to me to even hear that, you know, I'm walking through this. A lot of stuff happens in life, and I'm grateful that I get to be, um, have the willingness to be abstinent just for today. It is so just one day at a time with, with, with his illness, with my illness. And, um, and I think that's, that's all I need to share. Yeah, thanks. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of O-Readers Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If you have a question, please click the raise your hand icon and either I or Nancy will call on you and you can then unmute yourself and ask a question. Um, and please stop at 9.50 and read the secretary's announcement. All right. See you here. So we have Nancy B. Right. My name is Nancy B., and I am a compulsive overeater and a 100-pounder. I've been at Overeaters Anonymous for 44 years, maintaining 150-pound weight loss, the other side of the coin. And um, I want to thank Nancy for, after my 
but I guess must have been rousing share last week by the millions of phone calls I'm getting for getting somebody with a different part of compulsive overeating to speak today. I think that's great. Um, I concentrated last week heavily on the steps and on recovery and on the principles and what to do to stop our compulsions, but I forgot one thing. And so my question is, I didn't share about no matter what's going in my life, no matter if my neighbor's taken to jail or my father's dying, that I had to blow bubbles and I had to go to the park and fly kites and I had to do my little yoga routine and a lot of self-care and coloring in a book. And I'm wondering what things you do, because after all, I read in the book, this is about being happy, joyous, and free. And I want to let the newcomers know, and I hope you will too, that with that heartfelt sharing, all that's going on in your life, it's like a God-given thing we're given to be in recovery. I don't think we can force ourselves for that to happen. But aside from putting aside your symptoms and your disease, that getting into the steps to get into recovery, what do you do to keep yourself feeling fantastic as a member of program? You know? Thanks, Nancy. That's a great question because I do actually – feel fantastic um i recovery is front and center of my day and the beginning of my day i i don't roll out of bed until i recite the first three steps in my mind and then i just go straight to meditation and um and i i really feel a lot of relief from meditation and I lost my father two months ago, and I'm in this meditation kind of grieving both him and my husband. And I feel like because I know I give myself a space to grieve that, then I can do that for 20 minutes and journal, and I do read the literature, which all feels like it actually fills me up. I used to, when I first got into program, feel like, oh, my gosh, they want me to do all these things. How am I supposed to find the time? And now I just feel like this is for me and I get up early before my kids to do it but because I give myself time and space to feel all the feels I then feel so much more capable of being present for the moment whether it's watching my kids laugh or playing with them or you know tons of you know when when I check in with myself I you know I, I want to do a lot of things and I try to make that happen because I feel more esteem to give myself permission to do things that are fun so um yeah I think but I think starting out my day and knowing I have the structure of my food plan and the willingness to be abstinent everything else is just like up to God and I feel so blessed that I I uh, I, I really have a lot of really good fun and feel good throughout my day so thank you next we have Terrell B Hi, um, so you came into program, you were meditating, you were journalizing, you were kind of like doing the stuff that we do in program, right? And now I imagine you're doing the same thing, um, but absolutely. Can you talk about the difference? Like, what's the difference between meditation when you were like throwing up in meditation now, and then yeah. journalizing then, and journalizing now? Like, how, have you, have you noticed the difference, or how, what's the difference look like? That's such a good question. Thank you. Yeah, well, the first difference was that I wasn't being rigorously honest. I didn't think I had a problem. I didn't tell one person that I was throwing up my food except for that therapist who just told me to not tell anybody else. Um, so when I um, 
so I was kind of just, I think before program, meditating and journaling um, as a Band-Aid. And now, and when I got into, when I first started becoming abstinent, I felt this incredible willingness and desire to maintain abstinence. You know, I, I also heard, like, it's so much harder to get abstinent than to stay abstinent. When I had one day, I was like, it's going to be harder if I lose this day, this, this second day. So the meditation certainly at the beginning became a tool that was suggested, and I was willing to do whatever it took. And I was like, I, um, I think the difference was that I also had um, people to whom I was accountable. And I was saying, I really think I made them my higher power for a while and sponsors and developed incredibly intimate relationships where I was accountable to people. So, and I was, I was rigorously honest. And I think then now like the meditation, prayer, journaling, it just feels good now. It's not, it's not just to put a bandaid on stuffing stuff, more stuff down and not, I, I'm, I have more honesty with it. So it becomes very cathartic with this 20 minutes where I can just like cry and weep or laugh and, grieve and and then um and and because i just i I often just hold myself like i didn't i didn't have any self-compassion when i was um anorexic throwing up my food because i just was so ashamed and couldn't tell one person i just didn't i thought i was going to go to the grave with it next we have bob m hey thank you Thank you for your share. Um, what do you do if that critical voice gets in your head now, or what did you do when that critical voice was getting into your head? Yeah, I see that critical voice all the time. Thanks, Bob. Um, I do. I see it. Now, it, I, now I'm not as afraid of it. Now I see it as a critical voice as opposed to being just immersed in it and think, oh, that means I'm fat. I better go exercise. Oh, that means it was, it was always just very, um, you know, a simple minded voice. Just like the problem is you're fat. The problem is you ate too much. The problem is, you know, whereas now I realize when that voice is, is active, because it is, um, I go in a little deeper. I often um, pick up the phone and call my sponsor or I, I, I really believe in casting a wide net, not having it be just my sponsor. Um, so I, I, I have a lot of fellows um, and I also have this thing called Voxer, which is an app. And we um, press the button and it's a group of fellows and we just talk and can, and we also have some boundaries around how much time. So generally about three minutes and, um, I journal, I read, I go for a walk, I pray and meditate um, with that critical voice, but sometimes I listen to it. Sometimes it's because there's something else going on, like particularly with me. Um, my voice can get critical on my body when I'm just devastated to see my husband in a diaper and that I have a caregiver living in the house. I never wanted that. So I can go to, so I'm antsy about something else within me, and then I realize, Chloe, you're just so overwhelmed. This is, and I'm angry about that situation. When I give it permission to have voice and ventilate it to a safe friend or fellow, I often feel validated. And then my critical voice is often quieter when I feel like I validate my own feelings and by often sharing it with one other person. 
think so. Julie T. Hi, thank you. Um, having turned your will and your life over to the care of God, and then when life kind of throws you a curve, as you've discussed, do you ever doubt or question what God's plan is for you? And if so, how do you get back into acceptance? Thank you. That's a good question. Huh. I don't often think about what is my what is God's plan for my future. I really don't. I don't know that that's my that's where my head goes. I go to what is right now, and yeah, I mean the big book says acceptance is the answer to all my problems, but I resist accepting this this scenario every day, and then I look at all the options and. Um, this is what it is. And so I can either kind of free fall into, you know, what what was read, you know, the care of God. In, the, in step three, I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. I, that, that word care just has me exhale and know I'm cared for. I can't control this um but I, I have to say it doesn't make me doubt that there's a power greater than me looking after me and my kids and pretty much everybody because I do also see that I'm not the only one dealing with challenges. But, you know, I, my father died. It's awful. I never wanted my father to die. I'm lucky that I've had my father for the first 45 years of my life. Processing it is is really interesting. I'm really grateful I have a program of support to help me. With that, but he was sober for 37 years, and I got to witness him. I, I look at, um, you know, it's just everything is mixed up, like where I've put my perspective. And I think um, it hasn't made me doubt that there's a power greater than me. I'm like, I'm abstinent through this. There's no doubt there's a power greater than me helping me through that. I don't doubt that it's not me. It's a power greater than me, that, and I have willingness, and I have willingness to take so many actions every day. And to be rigorously honest and to have self-compassion. And it's still a beautiful life, as hard as, as hard as challenging as it is right now. It's just been a beautiful life. I doubt that there's a power greater than me helping me through that. Thanks. Next is Jessica F. from New York. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you, Cloda, for such a powerful lead and a, a strong message. Um, I identify a lot with all the, the spiritual effort um, before and after program, and I'm just back a little over 50 days, so this may be rather elementary, but I'm wondering with um, with the bulimia and the overeating and the various manifestations um, of the obsession with food, um, like, how do you keep it on, like, God's will and focus on that when it comes to, like, instead of going to the diet mind and trying to control your body? That's what I'm still struggling with. Thank you. And welcome back. Thank you. Uh, great to, to meet you. Um, how do I keep it from going to diet mentality? And... And, and keep the spiritual um, aspect, I think, if I restate that. Let's see. 
I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's God. I don't know. I do know that I have all, all through the day I am talking program with people. All through the day. Every day. And it, yet it doesn't monopolize my life. It just fills it up. It just makes me feel connected. And a lot of the time, yeah, you know what, Jessica, I, I, a lot of the time I forget and want to go to um, a quick fix or grab a piece of food or undereat. And, and I do feel like meetings, I, I, we're so blessed to have podcasts at our fingertips any time. So that can often set me straight. I, I, I do, we're told this is a disease of forgetting and I do forget all the time. And yet I often plug in a meeting. I have, I, I don't know how many meetings. I, I, I do three in-person meetings a week and then I do a lot of podcasts. And sometimes it's just 10 minutes of a podcast and I feel like, oh yeah, and there's me. I know someone else is going through this. This is how they apply it. Um, just even yesterday, like listening to a podcast helped me knuckle down and complete my step four that I'd been procrastinating and working on and punishing myself that I hadn't completed it. So um, how do I not make it go to the diet mentality? Um, Well, I guess I just, I do really hear slogans a lot in my head, you know, um, that it's not about the food. It's all about the food. It's that my body is not my business. um, Talking about it. My sponsor talks very openly to me also about her, you know, I'm going to going to criticism about my, my thighs or this or that. So I, I feel like through practice, I know it's never about my thighs. I know that when I'm not in my body image and I see somebody else talking about their struggle with body image, and when I'm not in it, I realize, gosh, but even if I had five more pounds on me, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And then when I feel the five pounds, it feels like a really big deal. So it's it's like how do I so quickly get back to compassion and what's the next right action for self-love and self-care? And a lot of the time it's picking up the phone, a meeting, or um, sometimes I literally drop to my knees in the kitchen just like (laughs) to be dramatic, but to really just like make it. I need help. I just need help. I can't do this alone. I know for a fact that I would be dieting laxative abusing and throwing up my food if I didn't have the program of recovery in all of you guys. Like, I just need people. hope that helps. You have time for one more question. Anybody have a question for Chloe? Okay. Well, I have a question. <laughs> um, Oh, Cheryl, did you have a question? Oh, no, please go ahead. I just wanted thank you so much, Chloe. Really, unbelievable, beautiful. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, So my question, Chloe, is what steps did you kind of struggle with when you were first um, starting out the steps in the program, and how did you kind of overcome that challenge on working whichever step? I think I, you know, I I, I was, thank you, Nancy. Um, I think it was, I just did whatever was recommended right away, but I don't know that I believed it. I think I still work daily on admitting I'm powerless 
just admitting I am powerless and my life is unmanageable and I so want to manage my life and not be powerless. But as soon as I realize the things over which are not, I am not in, it's not within my power, I feel a lot of relief. But it, it has taken me a long time to understand what that means to me, powerlessness, and that it's, it's genuinely like, having the and then the wisdom to know the difference understanding what i i can do in a given situation and what i really need to let go of and then it's so in my body to think i i need to still hang on and control it and then oh wait a minute that's not my that's not my place that's not within my power and to really have the courage to um, change the things i can and then let go i think that's I don't know if it was necessarily hard as much as it just kind of like this unpeeling of an onion has been revealed to me in a different way. Step four is um, it was hard for me, but I think it was because of my own procrastination and and (laughs) self-criticism. When I finished it, step four, um, each time I've done it several times, it, it was such a relief, and I, I feel like I keep learning the same thing. It's like I procrastinate because I'm afraid of something that's not there, and it, it, it only helps me. <laughs> okay, so now it is time for Secretary's announcement.